Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 243 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Georgie Fear. Georgie is an author, registered dietitian, and a nutrition coach that specializes in disordered eating and weight loss. This conversation with Georgie was phenomenal. Many people are experiencing challenges with binge eating and emotional eating. The need for more awareness in this area is greater than ever. Georgie is an expert in this field and through her podcasts, books and coaching, she's leading the way and helping so many people overcome the challenges that they're facing. In this conversation, you can expect to learn how much disorderly eating is caused by our psychological state versus food, what you can do to fill the void when you stop using food as a coping mechanism, and what Georgie believes is the long-term solution to disordered eating on a global level, along with so much more. So without further ado, Georgie Fear. Georgie Fear, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is mine. I'm really looking forward to diving into today's conversation. And before we do, could you give us some background information on who you are and what it is that you do? Sure, be happy to. Um, so my name is Georgie Fear. I'm a registered dietitian and I do nutrition counseling as the, the umbrella term. Specifically, I work predominantly with people who are struggling with disordered eating, in particular binge eating disorder. And then I also work with people on weight loss. So I have done some more sports nutrition in the past. I've you know, found that I'm doing less and less sports nutrition and more and more of the disordered eating. One, because it's fulfilling and two, because it's just such a great need that I feel is not being perfectly met by a long shot, you know, kind of in the services that are available. Interesting. So more so in the sports nutrition, you feel like it's not being met? I think so. I mean, if an athlete out there really wants to get help, the predominant barrier for athletes, especially at the highest levels, is often expense. You know, a lot of athletes are like, I can't necessarily pay for to see a board certified you know, sports nutrition specialist. But if they can, there's many excellent, well-qualified people that they can go to. So it's available. It's there. The information is online. And what I see as the greater need with disordered eating is that it's impacting people's lives on a much, like, I'll say a more profound level. No one's life is marred by like not getting the right amount of carbohydrates per hour during their during their 10k or their their marathon like i'm i'm a, a sporting person myself and like i love athletics i love sport i don't want to downplay the importance of that at all but you know when i talk to people who really are suffering 
from, you know, just not having peace with food. It's like a 24 seven daily battle that like prevents people from really living the life that they want to live. It feels like it's this such a uh, problem with so much more depth to it. And there's just so much more meaning. Like, I really feel like if you can change somebody's life, that's such a wonderful thing to be able to walk with someone through as opposed to like, I hit a PR. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's enormous. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I had a similar conversation with a coach recently who branded himself as like a physique coach and he would take people through these bodybuilding shows. And at the end of the day, they're going to turn up in fantastic shape, but the difference between them being second and third or first and second could be so disheartening after like 24 weeks of loads of hard work. But then on the other hand, you've got someone who's just been able to walk up the stairs without being breathless for the first time or pick their child up off the floor and they're win is so significant. So that's why working with, you know, let's say general population versus like athletes, for example, like the meaning isn't, yeah, like you said, it's not comparable directly, but there's certainly more of a profound impact to those people when it impacts their day-to-day lives. I'm really lucky. I've been doing it for 17 years. I did the math yesterday, 17 years now. And I just love getting to talk with people and find out what makes them click and, you know, why they eat the way they do and what about it bothers them and how we can iron that out. I could just, I really look forward to getting to call the next person on my schedule every day. Cause I'm like, I want to find out how Claire's doing. I want to find out, you know, how Josie's doing and yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Sounds like you're the best person to do the job on that note. And I want to ask you the question, cause I'm curious, I'm sure that five-year-old Georgie didn't have the ambitions to be doing this. So where did this journey begin? Uh, where did this journey begin and how have you kind of progressed throughout your own personal journey to get to the place you are today? Yeah, I'm sure five-year-old Georgie was like just trying to domineer the sandbox or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do until I went to college. And I had, you know, kind of grown up in my high school years, was very involved in sport. I was throwing the discus on the track team because I'm not a very fast runner. So they were like, here, throw things. So um So I was a thrower, but I took it very seriously and I really loved strength training and challenging myself. And so sport was always very important to me. And I considered doing something in, you know, sport or fitness or outdoor recreation. But nutrition had also become very important to me, in part because I had gone through an eating disorder and had the support of a dietitian and a doctor and a psychologist to sort of help me navigate my way through that and not end up going super far down the rabbit hole. And I was thinking like, I don't know if I want to do nutrition in this, in the, I didn't really know what it meant. I'll say to like work in nutrition. And then I got to college and I was thinking, I'm going to do environmental sciences. I'll be outdoors a lot. I really like that. And then it was a freshman orientation. And this is how fast I came to the decision to do nutrition. We're going around the circle and people are changing. People are declaring, you know, what they want to study. And like somebody said nutrition. And by the time the cir- it got around the circle, and it was my turn. I had changed my mind. <laughs> And I was like, I'm going to do nutrition just because somebody else in the circle said it. And I was like, I'm missing out if I don't do that. I just, that is what I want to do. And hopefully it's not terrible, but it wasn't. It was fascinating from the time I got into it. And so I'm one of the few people that declared a major freshman year and stuck with it all the way through. Never wanted to change or, or play the field in hop departments. And then I went on to become a registered dietitian thinking, you know, I really like working with people. And I did my internship, which is essentially a year of clinical rotations. So you get to know the ins and outs of being a dietitian in a hospital. And then I was like, I don't know if this is for me. There's something about working in hospitals that can make you feel like you're too late in the process. 
if only I could have talked to this person 15 years ago, they would not necessarily be here in this, you know, really unpleasant state. So I looked more into what opportunities I had with a nutrition degree. And I thought, well, let me do research. You can't get earlier in the process than that. Because if you can like change the course of research, then that can like trickle down through people. And like you could change thousands of lives. And so I, you know, I went back to school. I started doing a PhD. And then I was like, I really don't like academia. (laughs) (laughs) Academia is like just not the best place for me. I do love some aspects of research, but some of it, like, I don't know. I wasn't sure that was where I could make a difference either. So then I was thinking like, I just want to work with people. And I had started this blog because this was the year, like (laughs) blogs were still a very important thing (laughs) at that point. And I had started a blog called Ask Georgie. And people were writing in, just asking me nutrition questions. And so I would answer their questions and I had the credentials to do so. And I also just had a a handy way of explaining it. And someone, a nutrition coaching company reached out and offered me a job coaching for them. They were like, well, we've we've got a whole, you know, five years worth of resume here. We see how you answer questions, how you communicate with people. Like we'll offer you a job. And I was like, couldn't take it fast enough. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I did not finish my PhD, which is why I'm not, alas, not Dr. Fear, just regular Georgie. And so I started working with people doing that online nutrition coaching and went on my own about 10 years ago. And so for the last 10 years, I've just been, uh, you know, doing it in partnership with my husband, Roland. We, we own a company called Nutrition Loft. And so we've been doing online coaching for people ever since. That's incredible, especially considering how long you've been doing it, because I know online coaching has blown up in like the past three or four years or so. But the fact you've been doing it for such a long period of time, it must have changed a lot since then. But I'm sure that your presence within the industry has grown and grown even more. It it has blown up quite a lot um, recently. I mean, especially with the pandemic and so many people not having the same access to not only gyms and socialization, but medical care, you know, it seems like the people that really probably was like a a firm shift for like a, a a wind that sort of shifted me more toward the direction of wanting to focus more on disordered eating. Because in the last few years, like the need has skyrocketed because so many people's conditions were exacerbated by isolation and the pandemic. And then at the same time, it was like, people can't get in to see anybody because not all facilities are equipped to go online. And so people were scrambling for the technology. So it was like, wow, there's a lot of people that need help. Yeah, a hundred percent. There's a lot of healing that probably still needs to be done and will continue to need to be doing, considering the fact that we're still in the back end of the, the pandemic. And I mean, it still exists to a degree. So there's going to be aspects of this ongoing for years and years. So it's interesting what you said is blown up, but I think the need is even stronger than ever. And on that note, Obviously, your own experience with eating disorders, I'm sure, plays into your role as their coach at this moment in time. Do you mind taking us back there a little bit more so we can get an understanding of your experience with it, if you don't mind sharing? So I work predominantly right now with people who have binge eating disorder or eating disorders, uh, sort of disordered eating that's not doesn't fall neatly into a category of anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. The majority of people who have disordered eating don't fit into one of those categories. It's sort of like this private hell of not having peace around food and dieting, sometimes punctuated by losses of control. So my personal experience fell mostly in the restrictive realm. So I had a lot of, I'll say, emotional pain and loneliness and depression as a teenager, and I wasn't equipped to handle it. And so for me, I sort of like settled in on limiting my food intake becoming thinner as a way that I could feel 
safer and more okay and less despicable. You know, I think like one of the things I didn't like about myself was like, oh, I'm bigger than the average kid and I just want to be smaller. And so I kind of, it helps me now because I can speak as genuinely as anyone can and know like how it feels for people to rest your self-esteem squarely on what the scale says, because that's just where you've learned to go for it. Like you've learned to go to that well. And when it goes down the number on the scale, if you're trying to lose weight, you feel like the world's okay again. And you feel like you're okay again. And you're safe from all of these insecurities and anxieties. And so people who are restricting their food intake are as hungry as everybody else. (laughs) They intensely daydream about food and fantasize about food. It's not that they don't like food or don't want to eat. It's that the pain that they're having that they're trying to keep at bay is so great that it overrides that. And so it is a, a really dramatic place of suffering to be in for a lot of people. And so I think I, my own kind of growth through that was a process of recognizing. And it it did not happen quickly for me. I was a long, slow recovery. <laughs> How long was, are we uh, talking? Do you mind me asking? It's not like coronavirus where you can just test negative at some point. It's sort of like a dimmer switch where you try and like turn down the influence of this on your life. And so oftentimes people are able to regain sort of like a, a medically appropriate weight. And so they appear to be well as one of the earliest phases of recovery, but there's still a lot of recovery left to do in terms of knowing like, who am I? What makes me valuable? What makes me okay? Is the world really a dangerous, hostile place? Or is it a place that actually feels like it has possibilities and welcomes me? So there's there's so much inside work that has to be done. I would say I was medically stable within a couple of years. I had a proper weight and... You know, I was healthy and fit and doing well at sports. Like everybody would be like, oh, she's all better. But it was until my late 20s, so probably another 10 to 15 years, until I was able to have a better grasp on handling the emotions that life hands us and being able to weather a disappointment without just wanting to go eat cake or <laughs> um, or melt down or cut off. You know, like some of it was forming you know, good, healthy connections with other people, you know? So it's in many ways, like as all people are, I think um, if you're committed to growth, you're, you're in it for life. You're going to keep trying to expand your knowledge and expand your strengths and expand your skills. And so I'll never be like, I'm done. I'm perfect. Game over. Yeah. On that note, is there any such thing as total recovery when it comes to eating disorders? Or is it something like you said, it's that dimmer switch, but there's always the ability for it to just creep back in from time to time. And do you find that with yourself, even where you are in life now? Or do you, would you say it's sign of something you get a control over or get a more of a handle on and it really doesn't come up as much as it used to? People end up at varying places sort of on the continuum. So, um, some people absolutely do have hundred percent non-disordered thoughts. In fact, some people that recover from disordered eating end up with healthier relationships with food than the average person, because it is fairly normal in terms of like, it's very frequent in the population to sometimes have really unpleasant, angry, anxious, whatever thoughts around food, guilt or shame around eating. And so I think some people who have gone through disordered eating, have actually gotten to 
a place where they're like, they refuse to feel food guilt and they are going to permit their body to eat what it needs. They almost treat themselves and their bodies with a higher level of respect after having bashed it for so long. <laughs> so uh, I always tell people, I, I prevent emotional eating for myself like a mama bear because I fought so hard to not use food. You know, I went through a period, I guess I sort of left that out. So I went through a restrictive period. And then I also went through a period where I would eat emotionally because everything that went wrong, I had felt like food was the answer. You know, after a decade of being hungry, food is like extra good. (laughs) So in my college years, I was overeating like it was my job at some points because I was so stressed or emotional or lonely. And all I could think to do would be like, go get cookies. So nowadays, when I feel emotional, if somebody's like, you know, you want to go out and have an ice cream and they're just inviting me for such a thing, I'm like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I fought so hard to not use food to cope with my feelings that I want to sit in the park and talk at you for an hour if you will sit there and listen to me. Like, I just, I am so like polarized the opposite way that I'm like, I will handle this emotion before I get behind the wheel of a chocolate bar. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to put them beautiful. together. Yeah, no, I can imagine if you've put so much work in to do that. And I'm really interested about this. I've always had this hypothesis and I think it's been backed up by my experience with the own clients that I've been working with. Maybe even my own relationship with food is that I've never bought into the fact that eating disorders are stemmed from food. And I know that sounds unusual to say, but I've always had the belief that it stems from something deeper and more psychological. And I believe I was listening to one of your podcasts and it was a study done and said that 91% of people who experience eating disorders also have had some form of trauma, if, if I'm not mistaken in saying. So is it all psychological or is there any aspect that people just really like food? Is, is that a possibility or is it all psychological? It's a dangerous thing to ever say that something so simple as like, it's all psychological or it's all food. I definitely feel that without a psychological component, nobody would, those behaviors just wouldn't result from liking food. I mean, animals and children and people who haven't been exposed to the the weight biased messaging and the self-esteem like slaughtering effects of social media, (laughs) they, we don't do things that hurt us. And so when somebody's eating to the point where they're physically in pain on a regular basis or denying themselves food, despite gnawing hunger, we have to ask why, because this isn't, it doesn't make sense unless we can explain some psychological motive, um, which is not naturally hardwired to seek suffering. So, um, In terms of an individual, especially with binge eating, there can be a shifting ratio of how much of the maintenance of the disorder is psychological versus how much of the maintenance is physical. And I'll say that because, and and in bulimia as well, between episodes where somebody feels like they're losing control and binge eating, they tend to hold back on food and diet quite strictly. And so it develops this pendulum effect where energy intake is very high during a binge, but then it's very low because they're guilty. They're physically uncomfortable. Their stomach bothers them. They feel stuffed. They feel like they want to undo whatever weight gain is going to you know, happen to them in their mind. So they tend to not eat very much for a long time. And then they get overly hungry and then it precedes another binge. So you have this sort of like peak and valley and peak and valley and peak and valley of energy intake. And so that can certainly drive the next binge. You know, so there is a sort of branch of people who share information on eating disorders. I'm hesitating to call them experts. (laughs) People who share information and try to help people with eating disorders 
will often say, you need to stop those low energy periods. You need to eat and eat and eat and eat because you're hungry. And that is why you're binge eating. And it's well-intentioned. It's in the right direction. It's just not the whole story. Because if eating a lot was the answer, then people wouldn't develop the situation where they binge and then they feel so terrible that they binge again and they feel so terrible that they binge again. And it's like, not everybody goes through the periods of low energy and take clearly there's an emotional factor here. And if you just simply direct somebody to just eat without any limitation or restriction, they end up gaining weight rapidly and feeling even worse about themselves. So we want to remove the undereating because we don't want people to simultaneously have their body going, eat all the things because I'm starving here. So, uh, you know, my personal method and the colleagues that I work with, we aim to get people to a place of like weight stability where their meals are adequate. They're neither dieting or eating. They're not eating 50% of their energy needs and then 150% of their energy needs. We're just trying to get them to like a nice stable thing. And then we can do the hard work, which is looking at the relationship between your emotions or your beliefs and the food intake. So, Some of the common beliefs um, that can come up for people is that food is the only thing that'll make me feel better when I'm sad. If I believe that food's the only thing that makes me feel better, of course I'm going to go to food. (laughs) It's natural to want to feel better when you're suffering. And so if you can't think of any other options or you truly believe that they're not effective, you'll continue doing it. And so we want to, in the example of that belief, reinforce some new beliefs, which is food does make me feel better in a way, but it also has costs. And there are other things in the world that can make me feel better. Maybe it won't be the same dose response or immediacy of feeling better as food, but perhaps the costs are less. So we try and experiment, like let's form some wider, more flexible beliefs about feeling better when we feel down. Does that make sense so far? Makes tons of sense. And I love that last aspect on almost like the exchange between short and long-term gratification, but I've never heard it described as maybe there's less of a cost to this because that's quite often what I'm speaking with in my clients. I'm like, We've got to start challenging that belief that food makes you feel better because it does for about five or 10 minutes. And then if you actually genuinely assess how you feel thereafter and for the hours and days after and the guilt starts kicking in and the physical discomfort starts kicking in, it's like there's that's conflicting beliefs right there because if you think it's making you feel better, but subsequently it's actually making you feel way worse. So if we can bring awareness to that, I really like the idea of saying, yeah, the the costs might be a little bit lower if we go down here. It might not feel as good in the moment, but it, yeah, the costs might be a little bit lower. And on that note, sorry, I just wanted to go into an area before we come past it. The psychological aspect, there's a couple of the clients that I know that I'm working with at this moment in time, and they will say, nope, there's nothing there. There's nothing in my past. I'm a really happy person. And I just, it's just food for me. So I'm really intrigued. How do we get these people to potentially look a little bit deeper and see if there is anything there, if they can't quite realize it? Because I'd say nine times out of 10, most people are like, "Mm, it could be this. And this has been a disordered pattern for a while, but there are the certain people who I want to reach who maybe can't quite see where it's stemming from. Sure. Yeah. And, and the odds are that they're being 100% flat out honest with you. And if they could feel something or find something, they'd want to bring it up so that you could help them. For many people, and I'm sure people are listening, being like, yes, I really had a happy childhood. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this. Um, a lot of times it can be as simple, but not easy as pleasure. Yeah. If you're a foodie in the sense that like, you really like food. You really enjoy the textures and the colors. Maybe you've 
dabbled in cooking and you like trying new cuisines, like food is a sensory pleasure that we can be a fan of just like we can be like audiophiles and like really love music. And the same way somebody like gets into a symphony and just like wants to immerse themselves in this artistic masterpiece, perfectly parallels a really good food experience for someone that really enjoys that. So the question then becomes, how much do we go for pleasure at like expense? You know, like at some point you have to look at perhaps the, the parallels of substance abuse. Like, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> if you're, if somebody has an experience with a drug that makes them feel really wonderful and they think, of course I want to do that again. Like, yeah, I liked it. It was good. At some point it starts to cause costs to them, whether financial health, risk to their job, risk to them legally, their relationships start to suffer. They find that they're lying to people to obtain more and more of the drug. Like when does it become problematic? I think, you know, many people will say these things become problematic when it's beginning to cost us. So loving food, there's nothing wrong with that. But if your love for food is something that you're following despite costs to your physical health, your type 2 diabetes is spiraling out of control. Your weight is you know, increasing the problems of the arthritis on your knees. You're ashamed of your food intake. And so you're hiding from people to eat in secret. That's major cost to your self-esteem right there. If you're paying those sorts of costs, then we have to sort of look at why are you willing to put up with so much cost for that pleasure. And sometimes it's people don't have a lot of pleasure or joy in their lives in other realms. And so I tell people like joy and pleasure are as much of a daily need as water. Maybe you can get by a day without having any joyful stimuli in your life, but I hope you don't have to do it too often, like completely zero joy. This should be, you know, we, we live on the little things like the sunbeam that's coming in here that feels lovely, even though it's blowing out my picture intermittently. <laughs> the, the, the sound of the dog snoring in the other room or the smell of the coffee. Like there's so many places that we can get pleasure from, but if we've refined our senses to the place where we're like only looking for it in food, then we may start to obsess only on that one Avenue, as opposed to having a hundred different places in our life that it feels like joy is coming at us from all directions. I often talk about a scarcity mindset. And if people feel like there's only so much joy, there's not enough for us all to have enough. And I want every little bit that I can have. And food is the only source of joy that just leads right to overconsumption. But so if you back up a second and you're like, wait a second, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of pleasures. There's a lot of people and relationships that can nourish me and support me and give my life meaning. And I have challenging work that has its own sort of fulfillment. There's so much abundance of good things. And food is awesome. Like, I love food. (laughs) But I don't have to only go to food. And I don't have to hoard it like it's not going to be there tomorrow. You know, we can sort of uh, establish more of a appropriate, I hate to use the word appropriate, like a a comfortable, non-harming relationship with food where you enjoy it, but it's it's not leaning disproportionately on food. How do do you think that might match up with your, your clients that you know personally? I think it's a fantastic perspective. I definitely can resonate with the lack of joy or enjoyable things on people's schedules. They get so caught up, especially across the past year or so when the lockdowns were in full force as well. I remember asking people like, when was the last time you had something to look forward to on your diary? And they were like, I don't, you know, and that was a real big realization. But I think that's a really good question for them to answer them, ask themselves. And I think there's going to be light bulb moments in the sense of, what is this costing me? Because it might not be the, yeah. And why am I willing to go through all of these 
costs and pains. And, you know, I'm paying a coach for this result for like three or four or five months, but I'm still willing to go and do the thing that takes me away from my goals. And then asking that question, I've never presented that question to my clients. So I'm excited for them to start discovering that. I think it's an amazing, a really amazing perspective. And we also touched on the experts in quotation marks, um, discussing just consistently overeating. And I think a lot of influencers as well, as well are making that very popular at the moment. What is your perspective on those type of people who are really promoting it? Because I know there's a lot of famous influencers right now. They call it like all in and they eat everything in sight and they're saying how positive it's been for their body, encouraging everyone else to do the rest. Like what is the issue with going quote unquote all in with eating um, time and time again? Uh, so I'm not f- too familiar with it. I keep myself insulated from as much social media as wise <laughs> trends yeah. as I can. I think it's the only reason I've survived in the industry longer than a lot of people. <laughs> people are like, have you heard of this trend? I'm like, no. And I don't want to Google it. Just don't make me. <laughs> so let me, yeah. If I was to explain it a little bit more, there's this really famous influence. I didn't want to name a name, but her name is Stephanie Buttermore. And she's basically made consistently eating whatever she wants. Very, very popular. She has like an incredibly popular YouTube channel. And so many people are now following just eating literally as much as they possibly want to in order to gain weight, in order to repair their relationship with food. Um, so that that's essentially the trend. Got it. Okay. So it's there's some merit to it. So like, let's start with where this could be incredibly helpful for people. If somebody has been suffering from restraint their whole life, it feels incredibly wonderful and freeing in a way that, you know, there's no good way to support this, but like, I feel like everybody deserves to just eat whatever they want for once. Like it's, it's such a wonderful feeling if you've been bossed around by other people's restrictions and then internalize them to be your own restrictions. Like some people have truly never just eaten what they want to eat, period. Like it's always been clouded by like, what's higher calorie, what's lower calorie. What are my friends going to say? What's my mom going to say if I eat that? So it can be incredibly freeing and reparative in a psychological sense to have that experience. Now, where it can start to cause problems is that for many people, they're using food as a coping mechanism to make up for imbalance or a need that's not being met elsewhere. So if somebody's, you know, to use the prior example of not having any other sources of joy or fun or recreation in their life, and you say, just eat whatever you want to, they're going to keep eating at a disproportionate level because they're, you can never get enough of something that almost does the job. That's a quote I took from a book that I read yesterday and I'm not gonna remember the author's name. <laughs> like, and I just like, the reason that it's stuck in my mind is because I replayed it about 10 times. I was like, that's so good. Like you can never get enough of something that almost does the job. And if we're learning like that I can eat enough to satisfy my hunger and then my hunger goes away for hours and it's this great freedom. Like, yeah, for physiological restraint. And that can be super, super helpful. Just learn that you will actually get satisfied if you let yourself eat enough. But if it's something that people are doing to cope with crushing anxiety or to cope out traumatic memories that are intruding in their everyday and preventing them from you know, living their life, they're just going to keep overeating. It's not going to... A lot of times the claim of the sort of like unchecked consumption recommenders is that you won't eat everything forever. Like you'll stop before you're 600 pounds and can't get out of bed because they did. But that doesn't mean that everyone's got the same experience. It doesn't mean that everyone has the same brain and the same responses. And so I, I think it's, it's a shotgun approach that isn't helpful to a large segment of people. 
that said, if people want to give it a try, it's not going to harm anybody in a very short-term thing. But have you heard of intuitive eating? Trend movement thing? Uh, I hate to call it a trend because it has been relatively timeless and long-lasting. They've, they've got quite a duration behind their uh, advocacy. Intuitive eating has been oversimplified into something that many people take as unlimited permission to eat anything at any time for any reason. And for some people, as like, you know, for this influencer that you mentioned, it's like, oh my God, once I just gave myself permission to eat, I chilled out and everything was hunky-dory and good again. But a lot of clients who are, you know, beginning to work with me, they're like, I tried intuitive eating. My intuition wants chocolate cake at all hours of the day and night. Like I can't just tell myself, eat whatever you want, whenever you want, because they truly have what feels to them like desires for food that are in contradiction to what would keep their bodies healthy. So in that case, we sort of have to look at like, why? Why do you want to eat endless quantities? And, and food in excess can do a lot of jobs for people, numbing emotions or creating positive emotions, helping them avoid things in their life that are just too painful to experience at that moment. So you know, we kind of want to look at like, what's the job that this food is doing for you? Because then potentially we can outsource it or hire somebody else. <laughs> And on that note, when we do remove food as the coping mechanism, what are some productive ways to fill that void and engage in the inevitable discomfort that's going to come? For sure. That's an awesome question. A lot of times the first step to answering that question for an individual comes down to identifying their emotional states. So before you're trying to put out the fire, figure out where the fire is. A lot of times, um, and I when I'm having this discussion with people, I say, we're going to try as much as we can to avoid the word stress because we'll use the word stress to envelop so many different states and emotions that we lose the nuance and the specificity of the problem. So we're going to stumble on it. We're going to use it. But every time we say stress, we're going to try and substitute another word. So like, I was just so stressed. I was very busy at work this week. I felt a lot of time pressure. I felt like there that my job was at risk, you know, I felt a sense of peril. I, I felt uh, vulnerability. You know, I felt disappointment. So when we can start talking in a slightly more nuance about the sensations or emotions that somebody's feeling, then we'll start to see that some actions are more appropriate for certain emotions than others. So for example, if somebody's feeling disappointed, and a lot of times they're feeling disappointed, we can do some disappointment-specific things. Some of the most effective are defining disappointment it's a dis- it's a discrepancy between reality and what i was expecting so when we encounter that quite a lot we might go what am i expecting here like what are my expectations for myself for other people for the world like if i'm expecting the world to be fair i'm going to be disappointed a lot of the time so what would be a more realistic expectation sometimes things aren't fair you know a lot of times people who do good receive good in return but it's it's far from a rule um if somebody's feeling a lot of overwhelm we can talk about strategies to specifically work productively through overwhelm. Maybe I need to make a list. Maybe I need to fight my urge to multitask and try and do multiple things at once because I'm less efficient. So when we're trying to replace food, a lot of times we want to get more specific about what job it's doing or what emotion it's helping with or the joy piece. If it's providing joy, let's talk about hobbies. You haven't had a hobby in a decade. Let's talk about some things you might try. So some of it will will differ depending on the, the exact need that the person has, but some of the most common ones are for emotional management, rest, in which case we want them to actually rest, like to actually take a mental break, a physical break, get a little more sleep. Sometimes that's a really important substitute. Communication with other people, 
helpful for a lot of emotional things. And then also on like the self-expression side and having connection. So sometimes interpersonal relationships are the thing that are lacking. Some other things, a lot of times like the the first pass, like the 101 level, because you have, you know, you want to give somebody a tool as fast as you possibly can. Like before you know them completely, you're like, can I give you something to do? Distraction is the best 101, low, low skill or specificity needed. Like let's just come up with some other things to distract yourself when you're in a state that's uncomfortable. Because there's nothing wrong with putting on YouTube. There's nothing wrong with opening a book, putting on a podcast, taking a walk, deciding to organize your sock drawer. (laughs) Distracting yourself in another way is certainly a harm reduction. And many people who are procrastinating, they're focused on like, how do I get myself to not procrastinate? And I'm like, I'll be happy if we just get you to not procrastinate with food. And then we can work on the procrastination itself. So sometimes just subbing in an alternate behavior without too much focus on what exactly we put in can be helpful. Yeah. And do you think sometimes... The answers seem so simple that we think that they're just not going to work because of none of this seems too far away than what humans should be doing. We should be connecting. We should be exercising. We should be outdoors. We should be enjoying our lives. And it almost seems too simple to be true. So how can people overcome that barrier of saying, well, it's not going to work for me. I need this hyper complex solution to my problem when the reality is, is that they might just need some more friends and some more joy in their life. It's, it does sound very simple sometimes, the solutions. Often the people that struggle the most with like, that sounds too simple to work are fairly, they're like sort of like of the intellectual side. They want to cognitively fix the problem and you can't cognitively change a whole lot about your eating. Knowing differently doesn't necessarily make you do differently. So if you get somebody, when I train coaches, like when you get somebody that's like, I know, but... I know, but like, yes, but like <laughs> they're, they're being honest with you. They're, they're, you know, vocalizing resistance is better than them not telling you and just being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they walk out the door. They're like airhead. Uh, <laughs> if uh, somebody says, but this is so simple. I'll be like, yeah, but have you done it? You've tried complicated. You've tried fixing your entire life, like doing the whole overhaul at once. And like, yeah, it worked, lost 20 pounds yeah, for how long? Like, how long did that work for? So oftentimes pointing out to people that the complicated things that they've put value in surely because they're complicated or difficult aren't necessarily the most effective. Effort and results are absolutely not linear. So as a coach, I tell people I can, my job is to take your effort and lever it in the most productive place possible. So if you tell me that you're super focused on eating all organic this week, I'm going to try to crowbar that out of you and put your effort into something that's more productive, like not eating so many organic gummy worms. Like, cause a lot of times people, and we all do this. Like I do it too. This is why I have people to help keep me on track. Like my friends, my husband <laughs> will fritter our energy in non-productive places. So a person might be trying to pursue two goals and then counteracting them and achieving neither. So for example, they think like, I got to cut back on what I'm eating. I got to lose some of this weight. And so they eat very, very small meals and then they get super hungry and they're like, yeah, but I want to be more muscular. So like, I'm going to eat extra now. So they eat a ton extra and then they just ping pong back and forth, like not committing to either strategy for a long enough period of time and they don't go anywhere. And so, yeah. So if, if people do think that things sound simple, I'm like, that doesn't mean it won't work. Like if you want complicated, I can get you complicated, but if you want what works, that's what I've been doing my whole career. So I can tell you that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that probably a lot of people will then experience, and I'm sure you have this with your clients as well, is setbacks on their journey. You know, times where they do implement the seemingly simple, 
but then they inevitably quote unquote fall off or they have a bit of a relapse. How do you get people from not digging themselves into a bigger hole when they do have these setbacks? Because I think what that tends to do for a lot of the people I work with is kind of reinforces this I'm a failure mindset. Um, and then that tends to manifest in like, oh, well, this never worked for me anyway and all this type of stuff. So I'm wondering what you do specifically when you have clients who experience certain setbacks on their journey to getting to total food freedom. Totally. I try and set the expectations from the beginning that like, this is not going to be a picnic. This is not going to be like a smooth sailing, effortless ride into the sunset. Like you're going to fall and I'm going to be here to help you stand back up and keep going. And I understand like you're going to be disheartened and I'm going to tell you stuff that you don't want to hear, but it's all, this is part of it. Like this isn't going to be painless, but man, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be so amazing to, you know, finally learn what it's like to not quit and to keep getting up. So, you know, many people that have the experience of quitting at the first setback, it doesn't, it's not painless to do that. Like when you hit the first setback and you're like, I've blown it. I I have to quit. I can't show up anymore. I I just, I'm I'm so not perfect now that I'm, I'm ashamed and I have to drop out of whatever I'm doing. That's a painful experience. And so like people who have done that over and over and over again, like they know this isn't a great solution. They don't like it. And so when you can share with somebody that that's not how it has to be and that there's other ways of interpreting a setback, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you didn't try. It doesn't mean everyone's going to abandon you and leave you or criticize you or wag fingers at you. Like it could actually be like exactly what I expected to happen. And I'm going to feel sympathy for you and compassion. And we're going to talk about what happened in a non-judgmental way because it happens to every human that I work with. And then we'll problem solve it together. It's like a much better environment for people to feel differently about their setbacks, if that makes sense. So kind of right from the beginning, usually on the first phone call, I'll be like, so all of my clients that I work with one-on-one have a tracker. And so they plug in on their tracker, you know, they check if they did their skill for that day for, so if it says I made sure to get a fruit or a vegetable at each meal, they put an X in the box. It's very simple, low tech. (laughs) And I tell them like, so here's your tracker, go forth, have a great first week. When you come back, I don't expect to see an X in every box. If you do, amazing. But I expect there's going to be X's in some of the boxes and not in some of the boxes. And that'll give us two great things to talk about. What does it lead? What leads to a day with an X? What leads to a day without an X? And onward we go. Perfectionism need not enter this space. So I think just right off the bat, that's a different environment than a lot of health professionals create with people. It's common for people to come out of a doctor's appointment, a dietitian's appointment, a trainer's appointment and be like, I got to stick to it this week, like hundred percent. I don't Mm. want to be disappointed in me again. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like that a lot because it's almost like, hey, you're going to be walking on this tightrope, but just so you know, there's a ball pit underneath and it's not just a hard drop to the cold floor. You know, that's what almost what it seems like. It's like you're saying, yeah, it's like you're going to fall, but you're going to be fine. And we're just going to get you back up again. Mm -hmm, Totally. And there's no, there's no judgment here. Like I like to tell people I'm on your team. Like, and like, I hope you'll be nice to me if I drop the ball. Like I could be 10 minutes late for our session or I could forget to respond to your email. I hope you're not going to throw me under the bus and tell me you're done, done with me if I make a human error. So I I have found across the board, people are very comfortable with being human if you're human with them. So yeah. So yeah, setbacks happen. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think, like you said, it's just a case of letting them know that very, very early and then not setting those super high expectations. And then on that note as well, I find it quite curious that you not only focus on disordered eating, but you also focus on weight loss coaching. I find that most people usually stick with one or the other. And a lot of people, in fact, who go down the route of maybe having their own disordered eating and then go into helping people, they're very anti-weight loss, anti-diet. So how have you been able to, yeah, get 
through the uh, the sieve that most people go through and then can't really see anything else other than helping people in one way and not acknowledging that the other way is even effective or remotely something that should even exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, they certainly can be conflicting goals. So if somebody has disordered eating, in particular, this sort of overconsumption, underconsumption pendulum, trying to lose weight is problematic. So I tell people trying to heal from binge eating while you're trying to diet to lose weight is like trying to take off your pants while you still have your shoes on. You have to take your shoes off first. Like we have to get the binge eating or the emotional eating down, if not completely gone, but like to a point where it's just not going to impede weight loss. Because if weight loss comes down to creating a calorie deficit, which it does, But being in a calorie deficit sets off this emotional and psychological domino effect that leads to a 2000 calorie binge. Clearly, this isn't going to be fruitful. So why don't we leave weight loss for a future project and let's work on that domino effect? Like, why is it so upsetting to you to feel like you can't use food at any minute in unlimited quantities to cope? And so, you know, developing the emotional skills, the the coping tools to deal with life without needing to use excess amounts of foods to just get through the day. When somebody's gotten through that, there's absolutely no reason that they can't lose weight. You just have to make sure that you're maintaining your sort of recovery in that respect. And so if somebody is practicing, you know, using, I'll use myself as an example because it's always easy. I'm less worried about offending people. So, So in my own experience, like when I was dealing with, uh, you know, disordered eating and then overeating what the work that I needed to do was on my emotional self and, and my depression and my overwhelm of my own emotions. And when I had some tools so that I could handle a bad day and respond to it by cuddling my dog or, or talking with my husband or getting a good workout in and just feeling relieved and reset at the end of it, it doesn't become problematic to want to change your body weight as long as you don't go back to some of the old thoughts, like, well, that means I'm bad if I eat too much or I'm a failure, you know, like if you can keep things in balance, there's nothing that says you can't change your body weight. And I've had a lot of success with people. Like once you address the underlying factor, weight loss doesn't become so much of a problem. But if you keep the underlying factors emotionally, psychologically, the habit basically, like all of that stuff. Like if you keep all of that there and you just find ways to prevent binge eating, but saying bariatric surgery for a little while, that's going to prevent binge eating, but not forever. Or spending thousands of dollars to go to a resort where there's like, it's physically inaccessible. You go to like one of these weight loss resorts and like you absolutely can't access large amounts of food. You're just going to go back. You'll just go back to binge eating sooner or later. So, so yeah, so I guess I focus on knowing what we're dealing with and helping people see what their needs are. And that once you've completed a certain degree of healing from the binge eating, emotional eating, weight loss is absolutely doable. We just need to take care and we need to go gently because a lot of times it can be alarming if somebody's been like, okay, I was in binge recovery mode, but now I'm switching gears. I know it's diet time. They can totally backslide and have a, a relapse. So we kind of want to like pivot one degree at a time toward, you know, seeing if there's calories that they're consuming that they don't actually feel like they need. And if they feel safe enough to like experiment, you know, maybe I don't need to have this or that, or I can shift a portion size here and stay very in tune with how they're feeling about it. Um, I've had a lot of people that go on to lose substantial amounts of weight. 
That's such a refreshing take. I really love that. And it's very encouraging for a lot of people to hear, I'm sure, because I think a lot of the time when people are like, I've, as you said earlier, you fight so hard to regain control of your eating. You do think placing any type of limit, quote unquote limitations or making any sacrifices around food again is just going to encourage that. But like you said, if you have healed sufficiently and you pivot one degree at a time rather than doing this complete 180, then I think you've got every chance of having success in that. And I love, I love hearing that. I really do. And on that note as well, I wanted to know that do you, is there any point in which you outsource some of your clients to therapists as well to help with like the mental health challenges they're having. I had in a situation a couple of years back where I would start, I had my own experience with hypnotherapy and it was so transformational for me. And you know what happens? You're like everyone else. You're like, I want everyone else to try this. And then I identified a lot of these mental health challenges in a lot of my clients. I was like, Hey, you should probably consider opening the door to hypnotherapy. They would go, but all of a sudden they would be so overwhelmed by all of this trauma that they discovered that they could barely focus on their health and fitness anymore in the sense of their, yeah, sticking to their nutrition and their exercise because of they just opened this enormous can of worms that you didn't realize was even there. So do you think there's two questions in this? Yeah. The first is obviously, do you find that outsourcing to someone like a therapist or a psychologist can be helpful? And the second question is, uh, can it be sometimes more beneficial to first navigate those mental health challenges, heal some of that trauma, and then focus on it? Or can you do the two simultaneously? I appreciate individual dependent, but generally speaking. Yeah. So the first question is easy to answer. Yes, I do refer people elsewhere. I typically don't say you have to go work out your shit first and then come see me. Like I don't say (laughs) I won't work with you until you see a therapist, but depending on the individual, I may say, I really feel like working with me alone isn't going to be enough to meet your needs. And so I think working in tandem with a therapist would be a very good idea. And then a lot of times I will just bring it up to people. Like many people have, I have like, you know, screening on some of my intake forms. So it'll ask people like, are you feeling significantly demoralized or depressed? And if somebody ticks yes on that question, then I will bring it up with them. Be like, Hey, I noticed that you saw this. How long has this been going on? Is it really interfering with your life? And if I feel like, oh, this person is having a substantial amount of concern, I'll ask, have you had treatment for it before? What was that like? Have you considered receiving treatment again? So I just have a discussion with them. It really is, or adults, right? Like it is up to them. And then I share my experiences and what I've seen in a lot of my clients, which is even if you go through several different treatment modalities or you try medications and it doesn't work for you, that doesn't mean that nothing will. Most of my clients that recover, which is most of them, they never recovered before. And I'm nobody's first stop on this journey. Like (laughs) they've all done, you know, 30 years of different diets or recovery programs or binge eating coaches specifically and haven't gotten better. And so that can be the same with mental health care that sometimes you just haven't found the right person or the right modality. And so your experience with, you know, recommending people try hypnotherapy and then they're discovering that there's this sort of like dysregulating load of emotions that's coming up. That is a common thing that I know, not because I'm an expert in trauma, but because I've experienced trauma therapy. And if you don't pace it properly, it will just knock you over. <laughs> yeah. I think so, so my, the, just to interject that, I think my lack of perspective here is because of my health and fitness was in such a place. I was a coach, I was a trainer. So this was at such a level for me that 
I could maintain it quite comfortably. So when opening the doors to that trauma, it wasn't like I was going to drop off my nutrition and training because it was such a part of me. But what I think I failed to realize is that it wasn't such a component in my clients' lives yet. So they were already trying to get a handle on this and then a bunch of trauma that was thrown at them. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm trying to juggle all of this. So yeah, I think that that was my lack of um, ability to see the bigger picture from that perspective. But please continue. But I think that that was, yeah, partly down to it. I think that comes down to like, just as as a trainer, you don't want to take somebody and, oh, we're going to learn to deadlift today. And you throw 300 pounds on the bar. Like you want to assess your person and determine what's at their ability level. And so ideally the person that they're working with, whether it's hypnotherapy or another trauma therapy, there's many, would be, and it's a challenge, I'm sure, from a professional perspective to, to stay attuned to somebody and give them what they can handle, but also prevent them from becoming so dysregulated that they can't function and they can't go to work and they can't sleep or take care of themselves because that happens. So it may not be a problem of that hypnotherapist per se, but I do know that there are counselors who are more experienced in working with trauma as in like, that's what they do. And then there are other people that are like, yeah, I help people with trauma and anxiety and marital relations. And like, you know, one of 16 things they do, it may be beneficial to go see somebody that specializes in that so that they know not to like rip the bandaid off too fast for that person. That's a good point on that front. And I also, you know, something that I tried to do following that was to reduce the intensity of what we were doing as well to make it more manageable. But then like, but I still want my results. And, uh, you know, like, <laughs> which, which rope do you want to pull here? Because I don't think we can pull both at the same time anymore. Totally. Yeah. You can't like go full steam toward the East and full steam toward the West at the same time. Like, and trying to, you know, tackle emotional wounds is like trying to heal a broken leg. Like you might not be able to improve your squat this month, but if we can just keep a background level of movement going so that you're keeping the habit of coming to the gym, of keeping, you know, one eye on what you're eating, of trying to eat, you know, maybe you dial back things and you say, you know, I'm not going to hit my exact ratios that I had been doing so well, but I'm still going to try and eat mostly home cooked meals. Like you can lower the bar, come back to the essentials. So, so yeah, I think that's probably a, a credit to you and your work with your clients that you are taking into account. Like if this person's going through a lot in their personal life or their emotional uh, self-care, or they just had a baby, like you gotta adjust the expectations for fitness. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, part of the reason why I started recommending people to therapy and all these types of things, I was like, I'm not going to get anywhere with you unless you start to dig into the root of the problem here. You know, obviously we can put in so many of these different strategies and techniques, but I'm going to run out eventually because of that's not the solution to your problem. We need to dig deeper and I'm not the qualified professional to do that. So if we can go dig in deep somewhere else and then you can come back and we can, well, not come back, but remain in the process or come back, whichever you choose to do, then we, like you said earlier, like then we have a much better chance of getting genuine solution to the eating and training side of things, because if that's not what we're dealing with here, you don't have an issue with self-control around food. You don't have an issue with not being motivated to the gym. You have an issue with, like you said, lack of joy, lack of connection, unresolved trauma that we need to deal with. So hundred percent, I was like, I can't really do my job to a degree. I can get you so far, but it's not going to be long lasting. Right. I think that's a, a sort of dilemma that a lot of people who are in fields like ours come up against. We're like, I want to help this person, but I have to ask myself at what point am I beyond my ability and would somebody else be better off with this person? But then there's always the question that like, sometimes that's, we're asking the person to spend more money or sometimes we're 
asking the person who trusts us and wants to talk with us and like get it from us that we're saying like, I think we might be better off going elsewhere. So I do a lot of recommending books if I feel like I don't have the time to get in depth enough with somebody. So I think a lot of people who are exercise professionals as well, they're like, I can't even talk with this person for 20 minutes straight because we got to be working out. Like I get chunks of time to talk to people and I still don't feel like I have enough time. So a lot of times I'll recommend people check out this title or that title. You know, I think it's been really helpful. And there's a segment of the population that will read the book and it won't be enough, but there's people that will read the book and be like, oh my God, that really told me what I needed to know and helped. So do you have three recommend very quick recommendations that you can fire off the top of your head, maybe including yours? <laughs> um, sure. So for people who are giving themselves not enough joy, rest, you know, emotional skills, give yourself more. My 2020 book would be a good one to pick up. Some other books that I think are helpful for mental health. The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk is a classic and understanding trauma and some of the implications. And then I will pick a... I'm going to go four. Sorry. The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon is really good. Um, I find, especially like in my own journey out of defining myself by my achievements or appearance, I didn't know where the hell else to look. I was like, what else is there? (laughs) So that book is very helpful in being like, here's what you can feel good about yourself for if, and not fall into the trap of basing it on appearance or achievements. So um, The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. And then I just read one that's brand new by... Beck is the author's last name. I don't know if it's Martha Beck or Judith Beck, and I feel terrible that I'm mixing them up. It's called The Way of Integrity, and hopefully she'll forgive me, but it's an excellent book. The Way of Integrity is about letting ourselves achieve a new level of comfort with doing what we want and saying what we want and you know, not living in these like sort of small shades of duplicity that many of us fall into where we're trying to be this person for this person and this person in the workplace and that person. Like it's... It's good. It's kind of like a book about like being brave and accepting who you are, no matter what that looks like. So that was a really good one. I love the sound of that. Yeah. I'll put all of those in the show notes for people to have a check out if they uh, are intrigued. I'm certainly intrigued by the last one as well. And I have a couple of final closing questions. I mean, I've loved this conversation. I I hope that we can do a round two in the future because I'm like, I have like 20 more questions that I could ask you, but I want to close off on maybe a, a bigger picture one here, which is obviously you spoke at the very beginning about how being within you know hospitals you felt a little bit late in terms of what you could do and obviously with the work that you're doing right now you are helping people who are in the midst of an eating disorder so where do you think the bigger long-term fundamental solution lies to the challenges that people are facing especially with the prevalence of eating disorders increasing as time goes on way to just drop one on me at the end of the interview There are so many opportunities and the opportunities that each of us have are going to be different. So part of me thinks like, if you're a parent, oh my God, the fundamental role that you have in your child's life of how they grow up relating to food and eating in themselves and their bodies is huge. I don't, I'm not a parent. I don't have that opportunity. So my opportunity is fantastic because I have a podcast and I have a platform and I have the ears of thousands of people. And so I can do that work. Somebody who works in an office may have the opportunity to speak more kindly about themselves and maybe engage in less fat talk and self-criticism and better support the people in their personal relationships. Like being the friend that people can talk to about anything and know that you're going to listen to them honestly and not push an agenda on them. Like that can be your role in creating a a healthier, happier 
world. So I don't think the opportunities are the same for all of us. You know, granted, if we were like high ranking politicians, we'd have even greater opportunities. But recognizing what we do have, because we all have different circles of influence. And so wherever our circle of influence lies, I think treating ourselves and others with care and respect goes a long way toward preventing a lot of the things that plague us, whether it's eating disorders or, or mental health difficulties or you know pain of all sorts of human kinds. Oh, that's a very beautiful answer. And I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, pretty good for the last question after all the wisdom that you've given us today. Cool. <laughs> so well, sorry, so I tend to talk that. at length after every question. I have a lot to say. No, I enjoyed every single moment of it. And if people want to hear more about you, where can they find you? I know you've got your podcast, you've got your books. And if I'm not mistaken, you've just closed your intake for the next lot of coaching, but you will have another one in the future. Uh, yes. So we, we did, we, uh, so I run a coaching program called the breaking up with breaking up with binge eating coaching. And so we enroll every six months. We did just start a group. We'll let people in for the first week or, or 10 days if they're after the start date, cause we can get you caught up. So that's not a problem. Shoot me an email. Honestly, the best way to get a hold of me is to just email me directly. Whatever you need, we'll figure it out. So it's georgiefear at gmail.com. And my podcast is an excellent free resource. So I invite anybody to tune in. And that is called the Breaking Up With Binge Eating Podcast. So yeah, those are two places you can get more, get more info. Just email me and ask or listen to the podcast. Amazing. I think this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for your time today, Georgie. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I appreciate it. You had some great questions and I'm, I'd be happy to do round two. Amazing. Thank you so much. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.